Hello, and welcome to Across the States. I'm your host, Matt Fisher, here at the American Legislative Exchange Council. And joining me today in studio is Jonathan Howenchild, the Director of Allied Communications and Technology Task Force, and James Ternowski, the Policy Analyst of Tech Innovation at Libertas. Jonathan, James, welcome to Across the States. How are you guys doing? Thanks for having us. Yeah, doing well. Thanks for having us. Thank you for coming on. So today we're going to be talking about the issue of privacy and how it pertains not just to the federal level, but the state level. And James, you have a lot of insight to offer us here today. So let's kick things off. Over the last 25 years, we have seen the information age and technology completely alter the way law enforcement fights crime, maintains law and order. Now, people know about the NSA, Edward Snowden, the surveillance and whatnot, and the federal government, how they utilize technology, but not often do we focus on state and local governments. So looking beyond the confines of the Beltway in Washington, D.C., how do states and local governments across the United States employ modern technology in this vein? How do state and local governments, how have they taken the lead from Washington, D.C.? That's a great question. And state and local governments have increasingly been leaning on technology as a method of providing solutions for them to help carry out their duties in the name of restoring public order and keeping people safe. So typically what you'll see more often than not, given the technology that we have available today, is that a lot of state police departments and local departments are integrating and and using various technologies to help them with their objectives. So we've seen artificial intelligence get used to help develop this concept called predictive policing to help data drive police decisions when it comes to figuring out where crimes might be occurring and how to stop that from happening. So that's one common example. Another kind of example that we see too is obviously the use of facial recognition. This was something that's somewhat controversial, like we'll have numerous crimes happen and and law enforcement typically will go and try to run a facial recognition scan of somebody that's been accused of the crime if they can get a good shot of the face. And that's another example. We've also seen law enforcement utilize jailbreaking tools for unlocking cell phones that people have given them as a result of an arrest. If they do not you know, cooperate with the police, they'll just try and jailbreak it. So there's, there's various kinds of technologies that people are exposed to through law enforcement that we don't necessarily always think about. And it's actually kind of alarming. It puts us in a compromised state with our civil liberties. Yeah, so I would add, and then I'll kick it back to James, that Edward Snowden and the NSA kind of brought to the forefront of the American consciousness the fact that the government can use technology to surveil its citizens. And while we are rightly concerned about the federal government's use of surveillance technology, the more pernicious and probably more regular use of surveillance technologies happens at probably the local level. Now, some of these, as James said, you know, maybe facial recognition, which inherently is not bad, but it's how it's used, and other surveillance technologies. So I, I know, James, you ran through a few examples, but have we really seen any other problems or, or do we understand the extent of the problem that has emerged with respect to government access to private or personal data, which is the fancy way of saying privacy? Yeah, I think I think there's a few examples where we can see that happening. Um, 
There are certain technologies out there that law enforcement utilize, particularly one that's been getting used a lot more. I think that's made headlines is this uh, tool called Clearview AI. And what that does is it goes through all the different social media platforms that exist out there looking for you and scraping all the images that you have that can be accessed publicly, which by the way, this violates the terms of services of all these platforms, but this company doesn't seemingly care about that. And they go and they create this repository on you. And if something does happen where they're looking for particularized people, this technology gets used in that fashion. And again, even with um, artificial intelligence or facial rec, Sometimes what it relies on is a lot of third-party data that's acquired from uh, third-party vendors or individual corporations. So there's there's a whole host of things where, again, your personal information might end up in the hands of law enforcement, and, and that could lead to a problematic outcome. So these technologies are very powerful, and it becomes problematic because when law enforcement uses them and, and they become reliant on them, one could say that it puts them in a position where it could actually impede in their ability to perform their duty because they're so reliant on the technology. So what are some examples we've seen of these overreaches, over-reliance, and some of the examples we've seen the negative consequences? Like, any come to mind that have flown under the radar that are more prominent? Yeah, that's a great question. There's, there's a few examples of things that have happened in the past year alone. December 2019, there was this guy named Jorge Molina in Arizona He was working at a Macy's warehouse. Law enforcement approached him, said that they needed him to come with them. He obliged, respecting the law enforcement officers. And then they arrested him and named him a prime suspect and kept him in jail for seven days because they thought that he was guilty of a murder. And the reason why was that they had done what was called a geofence warrant through Google when this murder had occurred. And it pulled all the cell phone It pulled all the data, rather, uh, the location data of Google accounts that might have been in that vicinity when that crime occurred. And Jorge's particular information got pulled into that. And then he also happened to have a similar car to the person who was seen driving off after committing the crime. And the problem here is that they actually did not know that he was, without a doubt, the person who was responsible for the crime. But they kept him in jail for seven days and named him the prime suspect. So he lost his job. He lost his education because he was going to uh, one of those community colleges on a fast track to try and get the associate's degree done faster. He had to drop out of that. And again, it was just an embarrassing experience. And he wasn't guilty. It just so happens that multiple people had access to his account. And therefore, there was a ping for Google that put him in the area, even though he was never there. So that's one example. Another great example comes through facial recognition. This happens a lot, especially with minorities. In Michigan, there was a man who was not even in the area when the crime got committed. But when police ran his image through the facial recognition scan, they came out with this guy incorrectly, but arrested him on that. There was no witnesses to the crime. They didn't ask him for an alibi. It was really bad. Yet this guy got held in jail for 30 hours. He had to try to make bail. Again, he was arrested in front of his wife and children. The police told the wife to Google it when she was trying to figure out what was going on. So just really bad situation. And I think another good one, just to highlight one more, is with predictive policing. The Tampa Bay Times did this year-long investigation into one of these local police departments that was using predictive policing to figure out 
who could potentially be more prone to committing a crime. Now, the problem with this kind of technology is that it is reliant on the data that's getting put into the machine. So if you already had committed a crime in the past, you probably were more likely to get flagged by the program. And that's exactly what happened in this case. So the Tampa Bay Police Department, or this local police department, I should say, they sent their officers out to go and harass all these people that the artificial intelligence flagged. They were not guilty of any crime other than being flagged by this flawed technology. And I think it got so serious at one point that one of the people actually experienced an anxiety shock and had to go to the hospital for it. So there's a lot of adverse effects that can happen when law enforcement becomes overly reliant on using technology to help them with their duties. You know, that's a really good point. As we look at this, you know, technology is not inherently evil. It's it's how an individual law enforcement is going to use it. So, you know, to take the example, facial recognition may be a useful tool in the tool belt. I'm probably going to agree with you completely on predictive policing software. I just think, you know, bad input results in bad output. And I, I think we tend to have too many bad inputs on that because it tends to capture only those that have committed crimes in the past. Uh, anyone who knows the World War II analogy, uh, I would consider that survivorship bias. But going forward, the response. So we have these kind of problems of how law enforcement misuses technology, especially surveillance technology. What actions are lawmakers taking on the state level to address these privacy concerns, to address the concerns of the government use and access to personal information? There are various things being done across numerous states that range from a broad variety of solutions. So there are some governments on the state level that are trying to do straight out moratoriums of facial recognition technology and that being utilized by law enforcement. I tend to disagree with a flat out moratorium. I feel like that that is probably an overreach. And then you also have others that are trying to look at how they can just curb its use more generally speaking to respect the civil liberties. Uh, and privacy aspects. And again, all these are kind of in flux because you have this legislative process that goes through and and law enforcement tends to be very defensive when you introduce legislation that they view as impacting their ability to use a tool in their arsenal, as they always like to say. And in Utah, we took a different approach. We said, well, we definitely are very alarmed by the civil liberties and privacy implications of this technology. But the problem that often comes up is that law enforcement is an early adopter of the technology. And more often than not, we don't really have a good transparency process there. There's not really any good method of establishing public buy-in and and really solving the civil liberty and privacy implications up front by establishing guardrails surrounding the use of the technology. As you already said, Jonathan, like for example, with facial recognition, it's a very powerful tool. It can be very helpful. It can help law enforcement catch criminals. And we don't want to go and impede their ability to do that, but we should be very cautious in setting up the parameters for how and when it is appropriate for law enforcement to use it. And what are they doing in terms of transparency and how are we auditing it to make sure that there's no abuses of the technology going on. So in Utah, we created this uh, legislation called the Privacy Protection Amendments. It was House Bill 243 run by Representative Francis Gibson. And what it did was it created two state data privacy officers, one within the governor's office 
and one within the auditor's office. They would work in conjunction with a committee comprised of various experts surrounding the technical aspects of the facial recognition and any kind of technology, lawyers that were well-versed in the civil liberties implications, people that understood the um, harder aspects of it when it came to technology with like um, the code behind it, so programming background. And then also, just to be fair too, we also included law enforcement so we can get their perspective on how they're thinking about using the technology and, and how it's benefiting them. So altogether, if there was technology being flagged, so for example, the facial recognition, these officers would review it with the committee and come up with recommendations and come up with these guardrails and protections for people's civil liberty and privacy at the outset, rather than waiting for courts to settle this, which could take years and give you inconsistent rulings. So this was actually a big deal, but it was all triggered off of the fact that the legislature was really alarmed at seeing these technologies being adopted by law enforcement and there are not really being a good transparent process to get that done. So this legislation, which is a first in the nation thing, I think is a step in the right direction towards trying to establish guardrails to protect civil liberties and privacy, to increase transparency between the government and its citizens that want to know what they're trying to do when it comes to protecting them. I think that they have a reasonable expectation to know that kind of stuff. And lastly, I think it just establishes a better footing for approaching this kind of a conversation because we don't want to go too extreme where we actually hinder the growth of the technology because if facial recognition gets hindered in its development because we put moratoriums on it or something, that might make it harder to develop other technologies that could benefit us in the long run, like autonomous vehicles are really reliant on facial recognition to develop and we don't want to see moratoriums harming it because we took down the ability to do research or something through legislation. So this, I think, is a great step in the right direction. What other ways can lawmakers address the problem other from the ideas that are being pitched right now? Are there any ideas that are being discussed but haven't been quite put into legislative form yet? Are there things in the pipeline that we're expecting to see soon? What else can be done outside of what's already being done? I think that it's just an ongoing conversation. To be honest, it's not an easy topic when you're talking about introducing these kinds of proposals, because as I said before, law enforcement get very protective when you start talking about encroaching upon tools that they use that can help them with their duties. So I think that it's just, you see numerous of these things coming out in Utah, for example, on top of what we did, and it was passed unanimously through both chambers and signed by the governor with respect to that privacy protection amendments bill. But that didn't stop us from also seeing introduction of facial recognition bill, trying to codify best practices. We also saw reverse keyword search warrants getting targeted as well, geolocation warrants being targeted as well, setting up guardrails there. I just think that it's important that no matter where you are within the states, that you try to force this conversation every single year because, again, it is important that we have that conversation and law enforcement has to be able to come to the table in a meaningful manner. So that's the biggest benefit that we can see. But you want to target things like facial recognition, the predictive policing, genealogical databases that they like to use. That's actually pretty problematic. And we want to see some more reforms there probably in the future. And then like the geolocation stuff, all these things are very important, but they're very complicated from a policy standpoint. But you have to keep moving forward and introducing them. So that way you can have that conversation with law enforcement and see if we can find some middle ground, get something done that can you know, appropriately hit those civil liberties aspects that we want to have protected. 
Absolutely. Now, a quick message from Alec concerning an exciting event coming this summer, happens every year. A quick message courtesy of Alec. This July, join the American Legislative Exchange Council for its annual meeting in beautiful Salt Lake City. Join fellow thought leaders, listen to exciting speakers, and take part in building a better future for America. For more information and to register, go to alec.org slash Salt Lake. We'll see you in person in Utah. All right, so back to our conversation. Before we go, Jonathan, for our listeners, what resources and tools concerning this topic, concerning privacy, considering how it pertains to law enforcement in this new age of technology, what resources and tools does ALEC have available to its members on this topic? That's a good question. First things first, I will actually plug Libertas a little bit too. Libertas on their website has some great resources as well. So I would encourage listeners to go look at theirs. But as far as Alec, we have several resources. Uh, A couple of years ago, I published a state factor called a framework for privacy legislation. So it's really designed to help policymakers think through the issues. It doesn't necessarily propose a solution. As the title suggests, it's a framework, how to think it through. And then Alec has thought through these and has debated and discussed a lot of these topics before. We have several model policies that are on point. We have the Statement of Principles on Online Privacy. We also have the Electronic Data Privacy Protection Act. And we also have kind of a model act for digital contents warrants. All of those are within the vein, especially of what James has been talking about. Uh, And I actually look forward to working with James and Libertas here in the future, and especially during our annual meeting in Salt Lake City, to further discuss what Libertas and what Utah has done and maybe add it to the the library for ALEC. That's great, Jonathan. James, Jonathan, thank you both for this insight. Thank you for coming on the show today. We're going to be hearing from you guys again soon. We have another podcast scheduled coming up, discussing more of this stuff with you guys. Thank you again for uh, coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Again, James Chernowski, the Policy Analyst of Tech and Innovation at Libertas, and Jonathan Hohenschild, Allied Communications and Technology Task Force Director, both on the show today. Thank you for tuning in to the Across the States podcast. I'm your host, Matt Fisher, and we will see you again next time. Thank you for listening to Across the States, the leading state-focused policy podcast presented by the American Legislative Exchange Council, the premier free market organization of and for legislators. To learn more about our work or to make a tax-deductible donation, visit alec.org. Tell us what you think on Facebook and Twitter at Alec States. The views and opinions expressed on Across the States are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the American Legislative Exchange Council.